The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Subject of prayer, introducing prayer, and we said several things just that I want to cover just by way of review. Remember the definition of prayer. Prayer is that great provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks, intercede for others, and convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. Secondly, we said that prayer is for believers only. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, God's righteousness is satisfied, so then His justice can bless us. And because of faith alone in Christ alone, we become members of God's family, and we are granted as a, also the privilege of priesthood at that time, which allows us access to God, into His very presence. Third, we said that you need not pray to become, as a part of becoming spiritual, that prayer does not make you spiritual, but prayer is a result of being spiritual. You do not pray to become spiritual. You, because you are spiritual, you pray. Prayer is a privilege of our priesthood. And to develop this, develop our prayer life and our ability to pray, and to know what to pray for, when to pray, when not to pray, we must first grow spiritually. Our prayer life is no stronger than our spiritual life. People always confuse results of spirituality with causes. And prayer is a result, not a cause, of spiritual growth. Fourth, we said that prayer demands concentration and thought. Prayer is Effective prayer is built on a knowledge of God's Word, a knowledge of doctrine, and while emotion may be present, we may be go, going through uh, emotional times when we pray. Emotion is never the focus of prayer. Emotion may be present, and it's fine for it to be present, but emotion is not the issue. Prayer relies on doctrine and fact, and not emotion and subjectivity. Fifth, we saw that prayer is to be the highest priority in the believer's life, second only to learning Bible doctrine. Scripture says that we are to devote ourselves to prayer. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to pray habitually. It is to become a part of our life. Nothing should interfere in our devotion to prayer. If intercession is the highest priority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit for the believer, then it should be a high priority in our lives. And sixth, we said that as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our own spiritual lives. We do not understand the doctrine of prayer. We do not understand the will and the plan of God. Now, as we concluded this morning, we were talking about the subject of how prayer changes things. But before I get to that, I want to cover six reasons why people don't pray. Six reasons why people don't pray. First of all, I think people don't pray because they lack confidence in being heard. 
They don't understand the principles of Scripture related to confession, cleansing of sin. They go into God's presence. They feel guilty because of what they've done and what they think they've done. They're overwhelmed by that. And because of their ignorance of doctrine, they just don't have confidence to come before God. The second reason people don't pray is because they're ignorant of the entire biblical doctrine related to prayer. They don't really understand what to pray for or how to pray for it. A third reason people don't pray is that they are uh, ignorant of the mandate to pray. So they become too busy. They're too wrapped up with their own lives. They get up too early to make it to work and they run a hectic day all day long. They hardly have time for lunch. They get home 5, 6, 7 o'clock in the evening. They have to run then, then run off the Bible class and they just you know, don't have time or whatever it is. But I'm too busy to really devote much time to prayer. They're too caught up with what may be good things, but they haven't made prayer a priority in their life. Fourth reason people don't pray is they, they doubt God. They really do. They've prayed in the past. seems like nothing happened. So they're not really convinced that God is there and that God hears their prayer or that God's really concerned. They know they ought to be praying, but they're not convinced that God really really is there or their prayer changes things, so they lack faith. The fifth reason people don't pray is that they have experienced this disappointment and frustration in prayer in the past, so at some level they are bitter towards God. They're disappointed in God. And they, they've reacted in bitterness. And because sin is controlling their life and their thoughts, they, they just can't have the right kind of humility or have humility in prayer and trust God anymore. Bitterness is always the result of self-centeredness and arrogance and putting the focus on yourself and not on God. And in that context, one cannot pray. And the sixth reason people don't pray is because they have slipped into a form of fatalism. They just think that, well, God is sovereign. God has known everything from eternity past. And He knows what I really want. And He'll give it to me if I ought to have it. So I'm just going to just let it happen. And they just don't believe that prayer will change things. But what we're going to see tonight is that God's plan for prayer in human history is that, that prayer is contingent on human volition. That there are many blessings that God has that are contingent upon your obedience to the command to pray. Billions and billions of years ago, God knew everything that would ever happen in human history. He not only knew everything that, could, that would ever happen in human history, but He knew everything that could happen in human history. God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable, all that could happen, all that will happen. Let's say you were to graduate from college today and be courted by 20 different corporations with job offers. Now, that may be a little extreme, but... Let's say there were 20 different options and you just didn't know which to pick. And they were jobs in 20 different cities. God knows exactly what would happen in each instance if you took any of those 20. In each of those instances, God knows everything that would happen to you, who your friends would be, where you would live, what church you would go to, how much money you would make, how successful you would be. God knows every detail in each of those 20 options and all the many multitude of options that would follow. 
God knows exactly what would happen in everything in our lives. So in His infinite wisdom, God has included within His plan for the believer contingent options that are totally dependent on your prayer. That's why it says in James 2, you have not because you ask not. Scripture is clear that prayer does indeed change things. I want to look at some examples tonight, some biblical examples of how prayer transformed history. Let's begin by going to the book of Exodus again. Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. This is a passage that always shakes people up a little bit. And here we're going to see the interaction of divine sovereignty with human volition. This is a subject that always stirs up a little controversy. We have to be very careful. If we go too far in one direction, we end up making man so much in control of human history that God just reacts to what human decisions are. And if we go too far in the other direction, then we take away human responsibility and human free will to the extent that God's really controlling everything and men are simply... Uh, automatons or robots. When, when sovereignty is emphasized to the exclusion of human freedom, then human responsibility always is diminished. Fatalism begins to set in, and in respect to prayer, prayer is neglected because people simply do not realize that prayer will change things in God's plan. The, we must realize God has included all types of contingency in his plan. He has given the believer an array of blessings, both for time and eternity, at the moment of your salvation. These have been set aside for you in heaven. Now, these are contingent blessings, contingent for time and contingent for eternity. God will bestow those blessings on you as a believer under certain conditions. This is not a work condition. God is not going to bless the believer beyond his capacity. So, as we grow and mature spiritually, we prepare ourselves so that we're ready for those blessings. They're contingent upon our prayer. If we don't pray, we're not going to realize those blessings. And all of us are probably going to be surprised when we get to heaven at the things that God had prepared for us on earth that we just didn't get because we didn't pray for it or we did not grow spiritually and mature enough to be ready to receive and, and, and properly handle uh, those blessings. The principle here is that in eternity past, at the Council of Divine Decrees, the Council of Divine Decrees is sometimes called the Holy Huddle, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, billions and billions of years ago in eternity past, decreed all of what would take place in human history. Now, that does not mean that, that God controls everything. God in His omniscience knew all the knowable. God in His foreknowledge knew what would happen. And on the basis of that, God then decreed what would happen. This does not destroy human volition, but in, as part of the divine decrees, God decreed that human volition would coexist with divine sovereignty in human history. God is protecting individual human volition for a number of reasons, most important of which is that is what will demonstrate uh, His glory in the angelic conflict. And what this means for us in terms of our subject is that in many cases God has designed things so that the means of accomplishing His sovereign will is through human volition. If human volition does not respond positively, then God's will, His contingent will, is either postponed or remains unfulfilled. 
We have an example of that here in Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, this is after the rebellion of the people, God's given them the law and they have their uh, reversionistic uh, uh, appeal to the uh, uh, golden uh, idol of, uh, of a bull that, that Aaron built. And they've um, gone through that and God is just as angry with the people as he can be and he's disciplined them and he says to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Now God says here to Moses in verse 10, let me alone. Why do you, what does he mean by leave me alone? How could, could, he's saying don't bother me. How in the world could Moses bother God? The only way that Moses could really bother God in this context is to pray. God is saying leave me alone. Don't pray to me. My mind's made up. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe everybody out and I'm going to make a whole new nation out of you, Moses. So God is telling Moses, don't pray, let me judge them. And what we're seeing here, the principle, is that Moses' prayer restrains the wrath of God. By praying, Moses is going to checkmate divine judgment. In verse 11, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why did thine anger burn against thy people whom thou hast brought from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Now the verb here, Translated entreated is the Hebrew word kala. Sort of a um, C-H-A-L-A-H. It means to mollify, pacify, appease. It means to uh, induce God to show favor in place of wrath and chastisement. It means to entreat the favor of God, to try to gain His grace. So the word here, whenever you see the word favor, it is appeal to the grace of God. So Moses is going to appeal to God's grace to not destroy the nation Israel. This word also expresses submission to a higher authority. Moses is not telling God what to do. This is a word that is often used of a subordinate coming to someone under, under whose authority he is and, uh, and begging for something to take place. So Moses is not being disrespectful at all when he goes to God. He's not demanding anything of God, but he is going to God as a subordinate to his superior to appeal to the grace of God. And notice in verse 12 how Moses presents his petition. Verse 12, he says, Why? Should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to destroy them from the face of the earth. See, he's appealing to the reputation of God. God, do you realize what this is going to do to your reputation among the Egyptians to have brought these people out and now you just killed them in the desert? This is not going to glorify you. And one of the topics we will come to before we conclude uh, this conference is that the ultimate purpose of prayer is to glorify God. This morning I talked about how prayer should be anth- uh, theocentric as opposed to anthropocentric. Those are fancy words for God-centered as opposed to man-centered. And one of the ways that you can always tell whether your prayers are God-centered or man-centered 
is ask yourself the question, is what I am praying for something that would bring glory and honor to the reputation of God? Often the word the glory of God is kind of a fuzzy concept for us, but it has to do with that which improves or enhances the reputation of God. So Moses here is concerned with the glory of God. He appeals to his reputation. He says, Turn now from thy burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. And then notice the doctrinal basis for his appeal. He says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Why should you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Or Jacob. Thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by yourself, and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. What Moses quotes here, what he reminds God of, is the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament. This was the first of the unconditional covenants that God made with Israel, and the basis for all of the subsequent unconditional covenants that God made with Israel. This is its foundation. God promised to Abraham that he would make a nation of Israel that would, uh, a nation of his descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand of the sea, and that through his descendants he would bless all the nations. So, first of all, he appeals to the reputation of God, and secondly, he appeals to God's covenant with Abraham. Moses petitioned is based on Bible doctrine. If Moses had been ignorant of doctrine, Moses could not have made this appeal, this petition to God. So because of what he knows about God's divine essence, that God has made a promise and that God does not go back on his word as a man goes back on his word, Moses makes an effective petition to God. And the result in verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind, I think the old King James said repented, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now this is one of those things that always gives people a little problem. How can immutable God change his mind? Now remember, it, the immutability of God has to do with God's character. That God doesn't change. Now that does not mean that God does not adjust his plans and policies in respect to the obedience or disobedience of man, does it? Because we know from from Scripture that God has adjusted certain plans and policies. He may or may not bless. He may postpone things. He may change his mind as we see in some places and some upcoming verses. That's part of contingency. But his character never changes. But God does not go back on his word. This is also what is called an anthropopathism. And anthropopathism comes from two Greek words, anthropos, meaning man, and pathos, which has to do with, with emotion. And it has to do with attributing to God a human emotion or attribute in order to better understand the purpose and policy of God. That God gives it to us in our own terms so that we can better understand what's going on here. And this is an anthropopathism here that God is, um, uses a, a human example, a word describing a, a, a human attribute in order to communicate what is going on with respect to his policy towards Israel. It does not mean that in the ebb and flow of human response and counter-response, the freedom of human volition toward God, that God cannot alter his plan in terms of contingency. 
For God is so great, His knowledge is so immense, that God has included all of these aspects of contingency within that plan. That is more than we can ever, ever grasp with our finite minds. Moses' petition, therefore, is based on God's immutable promise in the Abrahamic covenant, stating that God had specifically chosen the nation Israel as his missionary nation in the Old Testament. And on the basis of this, Moses argues from a point of doctrine and extracts this concession from God to not destroy the nation. Here we see a perfect illustration of the role of a mediator, someone who stands between God and man and is the portrayal of the work, ultimately, of Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. The Scripture says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And because of his role as a mediator, uh, we can come before God. We do not have to go to some human mediator, some human being for that. Jesus Christ fulfills that role. Turn a little further on in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 22 for the other side of the coin on this. Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30 to 31. The context here is just a little bit different from, from the situation with Moses. With Moses, God, God's wrath towards Israel was restrained by prayer. But here in Ezekiel, we're faced with a situation where the northern kingdom of Israel has already been judged by God through the Assyrian army. They've been defeated and wiped out and scattered because of their idolatry. The situation here is that the southern kingdom of Judah is on the verge of divine discipline for their idolatry. But grace always precedes judgment. That's a critical principle. God's grace always precedes judgment. So God here is portrayed as looking for a man to stand in the gap. He's looking for an intercessor like Moses. We read, And I searched, I being God, and I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord. God is looking for someone to stand in the gap, to be the intercessor, but He finds no one to intercede for the nation Israel, so He executes divine judgment on the nation. So here we see a picture of His gracious character. He seeks high and low for this man. He seeks a way to be gracious, to avoid judging Israel. But grace does not operate in a historical vacuum. If there is no one there to stand in the gap, if there is no mediator, then there is no deliverance. Grace requires agency and a mediator. God stops the wheels of judgment here. It's a great picture that in the midst of all this, and God has warned Israel and warned Israel and warned Israel, and He's fixing to lower the boom on them with the uh, uh, Chaldean army under Nebuchadnezzar, and he stops the wheels of justice. And he looks for one person to be the intercessory agent in Israel and finds none. There's a great application to our Lord here, as I referred to already. Jesus Christ is the unique person in all of human history. He's the God-man. He's full deity, true deity and true humanity, united in one person forever. The technical word for this is the hypostatic union. 
Now this is a, one of those large words. The first time I really remember it sinking in was on a, on a camping trip. We were going up on a ski trip really when I was uh, probably about 14 years old and we were talking about doctrine and somebody kept saying, you know, there's a word that, 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 that Bob always uses when he refers to the, Jesus Christ. What is it? And finally we came up with it. You know, hypostatic. And it, has, it comes from the Greek word hypostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. And it has to do with, with a substantial nature the essence of the thing, the actual being of the thing. And what we have in Jesus Christ is the union of two hypostases. One is perfect deity and the other is true humanity. And that these two hypostases are united together in one person, in the person of Jesus Christ. By way of a definition, the hypostatic union describes the union of two natures divine and human in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. They don't bleed deity into humanity or humanity into deity. We're not talking about one person here who is deity and humanity. This would be half God and half man. We're not talking about someone who has other various combinations of deity and humanity. He is fully God and fully man. There is no loss or transfer. What his deity does, he does through his power of his deity. What his humanity does, he does in the power of his humanity. This union is both personal and eternal. And Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. The hypostatic union will continue throughout eternity. Even now, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven in hypostatic union. The fact that he sits is an attribute of humanity because deity does not sit. And as the God-man, he can stand in the gap for us. Jesus Christ stands in the gap for mankind. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. This is his primary, one of his primary tasks during this age in relationship to the believer. He continually intercedes for the believer. An intercession takes place, as we will see, in relation to the believer's weaknesses, his testing, and his, his temptation to sin. And so Christ's concern is to strengthen us in our fight against sin in our lives. If that is a priority for Jesus Christ, it should be our own priority. So what we are pointing out here, once again, throughout this study tonight, is that aspects of God's plan, blessings that God has for us, are contingent upon our spiritual growth and our prayer. James 4.2 says, We have not because we ask not. Let's go to another passage, 2 Samuel 12.14, to see how another example of how prayer might change things. This is a situation just after David's sin with Bathsheba. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, then gone into a uh, cover-up where he tries to... Uh, uh, and he does succeed in getting her husband uh, killed in battle to cover it up, to really murder. So David's been guilty of, of, uh, of a number of sins, adultery and murder, arrogance towards God, a number of other things, uh, the cover-up, lying. And um, he is, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and announces to him that because of this deed, 
You have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Once again, the reputation of God is at stake. As part of that punishment, there was a fourfold punishment which we don't have time to go into. As part of that punishment, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So God's decision is revealed to David. God know, David knows exactly what God's will in this matter is. But does that stop David from praying? No. God explained to, to Moses, my will is I'm going to kill these people. Moses prayed to change God. David is going to appeal to God. He knows what God's will is. He can't pray to God on the basis of doctrine. He can only appeal to God's grace. David therefore inquired of God for the child in verse 16. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Now this is a great example of being devoted to prayer. During this entire week, nothing else matters to David. He is not going to let anything interfere with the priority of prayer. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with him. Nothing, food, pleasure, anything would distract him from his appeal to God's grace for the life of the child. No one could disturb his concentration or distract him from this goal. He argues day in and day out with God for the life of the child. Not in a disrespectful manner, but as Moses did, pleading and entreating as an inferior to a superior on the basis of grace. For six days, this continues. Now, just a word of warning. I mentioned this this morning. That Scripture emphasizes the importance of persistence in prayer. But as we're going to see from this, that when God finally says no, you stop praying for it. But sometimes God just wants you to see if you really care about what you're praying for, so you need to be persistent. Sometimes the answer will be yes. But just because you're persistent doesn't guarantee an affirmative answer from God. Remember I said effective praying is not prayer that secures an affirmative answer from God. Effective praying is prayer that is heard by God in the throne room of grace. And it's more important for us to make sure that our prayers are heard than just bounce off the ceiling of the church and fall back down. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that somehow if you do everything right, you're going to gain a few brownie points with God, and so God's going to bless you and give you this request. That's nothing less than legalism. David continues to pray with God, but he is not bargaining with God. Verse 18, we read that it happened on the seventh day that the child died. David has been persistent. He got his answer. The answer is the child will die. And the servants of David were so afraid to tell David the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? <coughs> Notice how these servants are very much like a lot of people who don't have any doctrine and show up at funerals. They just really don't know what to say to the bereaved because they don't have a clue themselves. They don't have any doctrine and they're just operating on fear. So they don't say anything to them. But David, when he saw his servants, in verse 19, whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. So he asked them, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. Verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. Notice that word anoint. We'll get back to that in two nights when we come to James 5, that there's ceremonial, ceremonial anointing, which has to do with... with um, things that picture the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life that take place in temple, tabernacle, worship. And there is the everyday anointing that is the concept here that is just basically putting oil on your skin, putting 
ladies putting on your makeup, combing your hair, brushing your hair, putting on your deodorant, a little aftershave, uh, cleaning yourself up so you don't look like you've been lying on the temple floor for six days without anything to eat, which is what's been going on with David. He takes a bath, takes a shower, anoints himself, puts a little aqua velva on, and off he goes. He came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. In relation to prayer, we've learned that David's prayer was directed and appealed to the grace of God. Even though he knew God's specific will, he did not let that stop him from praying. He knew that prayer could change things, and he hoped to change God's mind. And when it didn't, he accepted it, he quit praying, and he moved on with his life. He had no idea whether or not God's grace would, would interfere in this situation, but he appealed to it. So we learn from this that that one way we we pray is to just appeal to the grace of God. We may not know specifically God's will in a particular situation, so we appeal to God's grace. A couple of passages to look at on this are Psalm 6, uh, 1 through 4, uh, also Psalm 38 and 9. uh, David prays, To thee, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? Behold, if I go down to the pit, if I die... Will the dust praise thee? Will it declare thy, thy faithfulness? Lord, why kill me in this situation? If you kill me, who's going to praise you? You're not going to win. That's a, that's, that's a lose situation for you, Lord. He's appealing to God's grace to end judgment in that particular passage. The point that we're making is if you don't talk to God, things won't happen. Other passages in the Old Testament we don't have time to go into uh, that demonstrate this principle are Psalm 34, which David prays when he's a prisoner of war among the Philistines, and Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance from Sennacherib. Now that's in 2 Kings 19, uh, 14 and following. I want to turn there and briefly look at that. This is a fascinating situation. Judah has rebelled against God. Sennacherib, the uh, king of Assyria, has invaded down from the north uh, east. He's already defeated Israel, completely wiped out the northern kingdom as part of God's discipline on the northern kingdom, and now he has marched to the walls of Jerusalem. As Hezekiah is confronted with this crisis, he goes into the temple to seek the Lord. He did this by going first to the temple, and then he calls for Isaiah, the prophet of God, to come to communicate to him God's will. You see, the role of a priest is to stand for man to carry man's wishes and to represent man before God. The role of the prophet is to represent God to man. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He represents God to man in his role as prophet. He represents us to God in his role as high priest. So Hezekiah goes into the temple and he calls for Isaiah in order to get the will of God in this matter. As the military situation escalates, Sennacherib, in his arrogance, sends a blasphemous challenge to Hezekiah. It's a direct challenge to God in verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them? No. Goes on. Then down in verse 14, Hezekiah took this letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord, to the the temple, and he spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah is going to prayer. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, 
O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim. We studied that context this morning in our study of the temple, uh, the tabernacle, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Thou art the God, thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. And we'll notice several times that there's a reference to God as the creator of heaven and earth. Creation and evol- versus evolution is not just some secondary doctrine of irrelevant importance. It is foundational to everything in the Scriptures. And we see this time and again in this appeal to prayer that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And Hezekiah prays to God. And then look, we won't go into that, I just want to look at the result in verse 20. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard you. Implication. Hezekiah had not prayed, Jerusalem would have been destroyed. Hezekiah stood in the gap in prayer. Prayer changed history. There was contingency there. James 4.2 says, You have not because you ask not. We have tremendous promises in the Scriptures about prayer. Matthew 7.7 says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened to you. These are unconditional promises. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, Jesus said. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. John 16.24 And in 1 John 5.14 and 15 And this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. What an incredible array of promises that God has given us related to prayer. That if we pray, He will hear us. And that if we ask for things, He will do them. If we ask according to His will. But now we must ask the question, how do we construct petitions according to the will of God? Ah, there's the rub, right? How do we construct petitions according to the will of God? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 for one illustration of this. To construct prayer petitions according to the will of time, it takes three things. It takes time, it takes thought, and most importantly, it takes the knowledge of doctrine. Matthew chapter 15. This is a situation in which Jesus is with his disciples and he goes outside of the land of Israel into a Gentile community. I don't have a map available of Judea at the time of Christ. So I will be very, draw a rough sketch. Here's the Med. And over here is the Holy Land, roughly. And down here is the province of Judea. And up here along the coast are the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, part of the old Canaanite area. And Jesus is up in this vicinity. So the people that are there are not Jews. They're Gentiles. And we read in verse 21 of Matthew 15, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region 
and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, I want you to visualize the fact that you are walking into the throne room of God. Now, this isn't creative visualization. That's New Age doctrine. Just in your mind, picture this. You're bowing before God to present a petition, the creator of the heavens and the earth. What would you do if this sort of situation were to take place as you presented your petition to God? Jesus' reaction to the woman's request very similar to that of God the Father in prayer, perhaps. The woman makes an appeal to him, a petition on the basis of mercy to have her daughter delivered, have this demon cast out. But notice how she addresses Jesus. She says, O Lord, Son of David. Now the title Son of David is one of several titles for the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is a title that is related to the Davidic Covenant. I've already spoken of the fact that the, the basis for all the unconditional covenants in the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant. There were three subsequent covenants that developed the paragraphs within the Abrahamic covenant. There's the uh, Palestinian or real estate covenant or land covenant, which gave them the land, specified the boundaries of the land. There's the Davidic covenant, which said that God would give the Messiah as a seed of David, a descendant of King David. And there is the new covenant which has to do with what God would do for Israel in the millennial age. This relates to the Davidic covenant. She appeals to Jesus on the basis of a covenant that God made with Israel. Does she have a right to do that? No, she does not. She is a Gentile woman. She is outside the covenant and the promises to Israel. How does Jesus respond to her? He ignores her. You see, she's misrepresenting herself. She's trying to ride the coattails of the Jews in order to get some divine blessing. And Jesus just ignores her. She prays. He ignores her. How would you like that when you pray to God? You scream for mercy. God just ignores you. Was Jesus being rude? Was he being insensitive? Not at all. There's a doctrinal issue at stake. Now, the woman does not give up. She's persistent in her appeal to Christ. Finally, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Send her away. Verse 23, we read, But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she's shouting after us over and over again. This woman's not giving up. She has a terrible situation at home with this demon-possessed daughter, and she knows there's only one person that's going to resolve this, And she just has to figure out the right way to ask him. Verse 24. But he, Jesus, finally answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Point. You're a Gentile. You're outside the promises and covenants to Israel. I'm sent to the house of Israel. I'm not listening. But she came and bowed down before him and says, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, I just love this answer. I just, I don't know what liberal theologians will do with this. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What's he saying? The blessings of God are not for people like you. They're not for dogs. Now, the term dog was a Jewish epithet, a racial epithet for Gentiles. 
Jesus just called her a dog. Oh my, what would the politically correct Pharisees of our day do with this? Man, somebody gets in the pulpit and starts calling people racial slurs, they're going to be thrown out as being not spiritual. But Jesus is making a very strong doctrinal point. And the woman's got real stamina. She hangs in there. She's beginning to learn a few things. Jesus is focusing her attention on some doctrine that she as a Gentile has no right to the covenant blessings that God has promised to Israel. They're for Jews only. So she adjusts her petition in verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What did the Abrahamic covenant say? The Abrahamic covenant said, I will bless the nation that comes from you, Abraham, and they will be a blessing to all other nations. The blessings go to Israel, the crumbs go to the other nations. There's an overflow of blessings. But when she gets it right and says, I'm a Gentile, I want the overflow of blessings, Jesus answers her requests. Once she gets it doctrinally right, she gets an affirmative answer. And on that doctrinal basis, she appeals. Jesus commends her because she's finally adjusted her petition to doctrine. And she gets her prayer answered and her daughter is delivered. Let's turn over to the book of Acts for another example of prayer in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. This is just a short time after the day of Pentecost. By this time, according to my estimation, maybe a year or so after the day of Pentecost, there may be as many as 15,000, 20,000 believers now in Jerusalem. Maybe 30 or 40,000. I don't know how many. A lot were saved on the day of Pentecost, but many could have been travelers. But there was a sizable community of believers in Jerusalem. But they haven't organized yet. It's still the incipient church. The church doesn't really begin to organize until about Acts 6, when they say that we need some people to help distribute gifts to the, to the Gentile uh, to the Greek believers, to the to the uh, widows. And that's when they sort of develop a little bit of a, uh, the apostles and then some helpers with Stephen and Philip and some of the others. So they're very disorganized. The only leaders the church has at this point are the 11 apostles. They don't have any doctrine yet. None of the mystery doctrines have been revealed to uh, the apostle Paul. He's not even saved at this point. Peter is still not sure the gospel is supposed to go to the Gentiles yet. He hasn't gone through the Acts 10 situation with Cornelius. So this is the infant, infant church here at this point. And John and Peter go to the temple and as they approach the temple, they heal a lame man. Now I'm really making a point here because when we get to James 5, I want to, I want to come back to this early period in the church. They don't have pastors and teachers, uh, deacons, elders, whatever. Nothing, none of that yet. They're still going to the temple. John and Peter go to the temple. They heal a lame man. And they preach the gospel, about 5,000 are saved. And in this excitement, they're arrested by the jealous Sanhedrin and they're hauled off to trial before the Sanhedrin. Now this is a quasi-legal trial. After hearing the evidence brought against them, they're warned to no longer preach the gospel. Everyone knows that the opposition to the gospel is increasing and that the lives of the apostles are threatened. How do they respond? They go to the Lord in prayer in verse 23. And when they, Peter and John, that is Peter and John, had been released from prison, 
they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Notice the all in this verse. After Peter and John are released, the the first thing they do is they go back and they give a complete after-action report to the other believers. Now, what this means for us is before they pray, they get all the facts that they can. You can't always get all the facts. But they get all that they can. Also think about the situation. This is a, has been an emotionally charged situation. Peter and John are the top two apostles and they've been held captive by the Sanhedrin. What emotions are running through the believers in Jerusalem? Fear, worry, anxiety. What are we going to do? If these guys are gone, they wipe out the leadership, what's going to happen to the church? And then they're released. What kind of emotions are engendered at that point? Elation? Joy? Emotions are running high at this particular point. What we're going to emphasize and see is that their effective prayer relies on fact and not feeling. There's a lot of emotion here, but they're getting all the facts. They're they're going to get a complete after-action report from Peter and John before they go to prayer. It doesn't mean that prayer is totally devoid of emotion or feeling, but it's not the focus. They're not going to rely on their emotion. They're going to focus on Bible doctrine and faith in the promises of God. Faith is not always has an object. Faith in and of itself is not meritorious. Faith has no value of itself. The value is in its object. It's not faith in faith that's mysticism. It's faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the work, His work on the cross, faith alone in Christ alone. It's faith in the promises of God, faith in the power of God, faith in what He has revealed in terms of doctrine. Faith seizes that doctrine and it stabilizes the emotions. And this is exactly what we see in this situation. The believers in, in, in Acts checked their emotions and held them in check by doctrine. They got all the facts and then they began to pray. Look at verse 24. And when they, that is their companions, Peter and John's companions, all these believers there heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said... Now it seems to me when you just rush through this passage that they got the report and they immediately went to prayer. I don't think that's what happened. When you look at this particular prayer, it's a well-crafted prayer. This is a thought-through prayer. They did not just say, okay, let's pray, and then they go, then go after it. If you notice in your Bible, somehow it will be marked, that the end of verse 24, starting with, O Lord, the end of verse 25 and all of verse 26 are quotations from the Old Testament. These are not just random quotations from the Old Testament. I think they pulled out their Bibles and they said, okay, we've got to apply some doctrine here. Let's find some scriptural passages and principles and we're going to focus our prayer. They pray with one accord here because of the doctrine and all the facts. They began by quoting here in in this verse from Exodus 20.11 and a passage quoting both Exodus 20:11 and in Psalm 146:6, "O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them." What are they appealing to? We've seen it already. They're appealing to God, the Creator of heaven and earth. Everything, folks. Everything starts with the doctrine of creation, the distinction between the Creator and the creation. 
And they go back to that. God, You are the Creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them. And they're quoting from Psalm 146, verse 6. But you know what's interesting? is to turn to Psalm 146 and read the context. I'll read it for you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Notice that third verse. Do not trust in princes. What's the problem that's going on in Jerusalem right now? It's the secular authority or the religious authority of the Sanhedrin versus the new church. Don't put your trust in princes. So when they go to this, they're showing that they draw from this passage the principle of the ultimate authority is God the Creator versus the temporal authority of the Sanhedrin. Who do they need to obey? It goes on, verse 6, we have the quote, "...who made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed." Who are they? They're the oppressed. But God is the God of justice. He's the Creator, and part of being the Creator, He is a just God, and we can appeal to Him. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. What just happened? John and Peter were set free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So their quote from Psalm 146 is not just some random statement, but it's a well-thought-through application of a doctrinal principle. So by expressing this doctrine, the petitioners are seizing faith and using faith to calm their emotions and their fears of a powerful government that could oppress them. Now I want you to notice um, verse 25. Beginning in verse 25, the end of verse 25, we have a quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, the end of verse 25 and end of verse 26. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, the servant did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm which depicts the power of God's anointed, the Messiah, and calls for the submission of rebellious nations to God. Well, what's happening in Israel at this point? They're being led by rebels against God and they're using this as a a reference to the situation that's taking place right there in Jerusalem. Since Jesus Christ is the Messiah, these believers appeal to this messianic psalm and to prophecies about the Christ's future opposition by the kings of the earth. This psalm refers to Jesus Christ, but as the new body of Christ, they were applying the passage that, that, that relates to the Messiah as relating to them because they are the now, and we are as the body of Christ, the physical representatives of Christ on the earth. We are His body. So what applies to him applies to us in this context. In fact, Jesus does the same thing when he confronts confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's been killing Christians. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So there's this, I mean, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? There's this, this identification 
of the body of Christ with the person of Jesus Christ. And they quote this psalm in this prayer to emphasize to God that His revealed will is that Christ would be victorious over the nations. Ultimately, there will be victory. And by reciting this particular psalm, it gives them a sense of victory rather than a sense of defeat or intimidation by the government powers. I want you to notice in verse 26 where it talks about the kings of the earth took their stands and all the rulers were gathered together that this is a a contrast with what happens in uh, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus. They're making the connection between the Sanhedrin and and applying the principle from Psalm 2 to the Sanhedrin who's gathered against uh, Jesus Christ when they crucified Him. Then in verse 28, they summarize the petition. God is stronger than any king, government, police force, or religious group. His sovereignty is so great that it even uses the disobedience of evil men and their hostility to bring about His own glory and enhance His own reputation. Isn't it marvelous? Even negative volition ultimately accomplishes God's will. Verse 28, they conclude, To do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So having built their case on doctrine and the revealed will of God, they state their petition in verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. We're not going to be intimidated. We're going to have victory through you. While thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. Now, this particular petition is based on the will of God. But we cannot always pray that way. Remember David's petition in 2 Samuel 12? He knew what God's will was. He could just appeal to the grace of God. Often that's all we have is just an appeal to God on His grace. There's no specific doctrine. There's no specific passage that tells you exactly what God's will is in your life. So we have to pray, Lord, if it be Thy will. This is the attitude of the tax gatherer in Luke 18, 13. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. A perfect picture of humility required in prayer. But was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Often we can't discern God's will, so we must simply pray, if it be thy will. Fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us, and we'll discuss that passage in Romans 8 a little later on. Jesus Himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from Me. I think it's become popular. I've heard a lot of people over the years say, well, that's just a cop-out to say, Lord, if it be Thy will. You're not really exercising faith. Well, if that's true, then the Apostle Paul certainly didn't know how to pray because in Romans 1.10 he says, Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps, now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to You. There are many times we do not know the precise will of God in a manner, in a particular matter. So we have to pray, Lord, this is what I would like to pray for, but your will be done. We're going to conclude tonight by talking about the doctrine of persistence just briefly. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, there is a parable that God gives. A very interesting parable. I'm not going to read through it. But Jesus tells the parable so His disciples will pray 
and not lose heart. Now, a lot of people ask the question, why is it that God says that we should continue to pray? And in this, this parable, Jesus tells the story about a woman who comes to seek justice from a judge. And it's a cruel judge, an uncaring judge. And she continues to pound on his door at night and he doesn't answer, tries to ignore her, but she continues and she pounds and pounds and finally he comes down to answer her. And Jesus draws the principle, if this man ultimately answers her and gives her justice, what about your heavenly Father who loves you? How much more will He give you justice? And all I can say about persistence in prayer is number one, the Scripture says we are to do that, so it's mandated. Secondly, I think it has something to do with the angelic conflict. We see this in Daniel chapter 10. There we see an interesting little episode where Daniel is praying to God and for three weeks he fasts and he prays. The same persistence that David had. He's devoted to it. Nothing else matters. I'm praying about this. And finally... The angel Michael shows up. Where have you been? Man, I've been in battle. I left the throne room of God 21 days ago, but I've been in battle with the prince of Persia, which is a demon. I've been fighting demon forces now for three weeks, and I finally got through. Now, Daniel's prayer did not give power to the angel. That is just garbage heresy. There was a guy named Frank Peretti who wrote a couple of these books, Piercing the Darkness, and a couple other books that were fiction books about spiritual warfare. And this has become a popular doctrine that somehow the angels are empowered by our prayers. And that's just hogwash. That's a fairly mild word for it. It's not biblical. Not biblical at all. Daniel continued to pray because of the principle of persistence in prayer. His prayer was to God. It didn't empower Michael. There's nothing in the passage to indicate that the prayers of Daniel gave Michael the power they finally needed to overcome the demonic op- opposition. It just indicates that, that it took a long time before the prayer was answered because there was demonic opposition and Daniel did not give up. And we should not give up. As Jesus said, he taught his disciples to pray and not to give up. Tomorrow, we're going to come back and we're going to look at, continue our study in prayer. Continue to look at these principles and tomorrow night, we'll look at the elements of pr- in prayer and answer the question, what do I say when I pray? Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for these wonderful illustrations that we have in Scripture of how uh, Your servants have prayed over the years because they realized that prayer did indeed change things. That does not mean that just because we pray, we will get an affirmative action, an affirmative response from You. But we know that, that if we do not pray, that many times we will not have that which we pray for. Father, as we have studied these things, I hope that it has been an encouragement to each believer here to make prayer a priority in their lives. That we are to fulfill the command in Scripture to pray without ceasing, to devote ourselves to prayer with all thanksgiving. That prayer is not simply some secondary exercise that people rapidly rush through in order to somehow uh, ask you for the things they want in life. But prayer is a specific spiritual endeavor that involves a multitude of aspects 
and that should be thought through clearly and precisely on the basis of doctrine. And that if we do not pray well, it is because we are ignorant of doctrine. And often our failures in our prayer life is because of failures in our spiritual life. Because our priorities are wrong, we cannot pray effectively. Scripture says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That we have to learn and grow and mature as believers. And as a result of that, our prayers will become effective. For the promise is that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And Father, I pray too that if there's anyone here tonight without hope, without eternal life, that they would realize their need for salvation. Scripture says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The issue is simple. The issue is not works. The issue is not trying to impress God by our prayer life, by our church attendance, by our giving, or by any other human act. Because Jesus Christ did everything. When He finished His work on the cross, He said, It is finished. We can add nothing to that. All that is required is our faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All you have to do is right now, in the privacy of your priesthood, between yourself and God, in the privacy of your soul, just tell God the Father that you have put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. And at that instant, you are, the Bible says, regenerated or born again, and you have eternal life. Father, we thank you for our time tonight as we have fellowshiped around your word for the spiritual food that we have eaten, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, help us to assimilate that and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.